Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're bringing you an interview that Robert conducted with a professor of psychology named Barbara Bletchley. Uh, Rob, I was not here for this conversation. You recorded it while I was out on vacation a while back. So uh, t- tell me about the talk. What, what is this? Well, uh, Barbara came on the show to discuss her new book, What Are the Chances? Why We Believe in Luck. This is um, a publication from Columbia University Press, and it's currently available uh, in hardback. Uh, you can get it as an ebook, an audio book. So, you know, any way you consume your, your books, it's an option. Um, uh, Barbara is a professor of psychology at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. Um, and her scholarly and uh, teaching interests include of uh, physiological psychology, neuroscience, research statistics, psychology of learning, sensation, and perception, uh, also the biology of depression and, uh, and factors, both environmental and biological, influencing the development of the brain. Uh, and of course, the book in question here, which is a, which is a delightful read, I very much enjoyed, is just all about, about luck, getting into... Um, various topics related to luck that you might not even instantly realize are, are, are central to our understanding of it, such as randomness and the difficulty in like even contemplating randomness from a human uh, perspective. Barbara also gets into the neuroscience of luck, uh, as well as how it relates to various uh, uh, mythologies and, uh, and so forth. Sounds great. Let's jump right on in. Hi, Barbara. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, uh, my name is Barbara Bletchley. I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Agnes Scott College, and I've been there for about, oh, this is going to be embarrassing, 30 years. Now, your book provides such an engrossing look at luck and and randomness and these various um, concepts that are all kind of interwoven uh, into the topic. Uh, so, in a way, it's kind of difficult to, to decide where to start first. I, I wouldn't want to just ask you, well, what is luck? Because that is that's the, that entire answer is the, the entire length of the book. But uh, I, I thought I might start by just asking, how does luck seem to be connected to the human unwillingness to accept randomness? Actually, that's a very good question. I think luck is the word that we assign to random and unpredictable events in the world. We tend not to like things that are random and unpredictable. They're very often interpreted as fearful or threatening. Uh, Randomness is scary because it's unknowable, it's unpredictable, um, it's unexpected. Uh, I was very fascinated to read uh, a book by Nicholas Carlton, uh, who's a psychologist in Canada. Uh, He writes that fear of the unknown, uh, the fear of not having the information we need in order to be able to answer a question may be the most fundamental, the most basic fear that we have and underlies every other fear that we learn. Uh, We are motivated, seriously motivated to reduce that uncertainty. And we do that in a number of different ways. We We can do it by being curious, by going out and trying to find the answer to the question. Uh, we also do it, this is very human, uh, we do it by labeling that thing that we're afraid of. Mm. Um, the tendency to label things that we don't understand, I think, is another fundamental human characteristic. 
it stems from our desire to control that thing. If you can label it, then you have some degree of, of control over it. Um, one of the more interesting studies that I came across in writing the book was a study done by uh, uh, Lieberman and a whole slew of other people in 2007. They were looking at uh, their participants understanding emotions, and they were doing this in an fMRI machine. So they're scanning the brain to watch how it uh, processes the information that's coming in. They showed their participants a series of human faces expressing emotion. About 80% of the emotions were negative because that gets a really big response. And the other 20% were positive emotions. Or they show them just a shape. And they ask them to first just observe the image. Don't do anything about it. Don't label it. Don't say anything. And then they ask them to, to label that image. When they were just observing the human faces with emotional expressions, it activated a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is part of the emotion processing system in the brain. When they labeled the emotion, the activity in the amygdala went down. So it's almost as if being able to apply a label to that thing reduced the anxiety literally in the part of the brain that is processing that emotional response, which I thought was just super interesting. I did not expect that. So loosely speaking, like something unexpected happens, uh, there's the, 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 you know, the, the unexplained, the unexpected in life, just by merely being able to label it bad luck, you're kind of reducing mm -hmm. the, um, like the, the emotional um, impact of, of the incident. Yes, I think that's how they would have interpreted it. They said that putting your feelings into words uh, helped regulate the, the negative emotions that that particular thing uh, unexpected or, or a negative emotional response from someone else. Humans are tremendously important to other humans. We spend a lot of our time watching human faces to see what they're doing. So being able to label that negative emotion reduced the anxiety that that negative emotion uh, provoked. Fascinating. Now, now speaking of, of applying language uh, to these things, uh, in the book, you outline four different types of luck. Um, can, can you describe these for us? Those four types of luck I came across in a book by Dr. James Austin, who is a neurologist and an author. In fact, he wrote one of my favorite books of all time. Um, it's called Zen and the Brain. Uh, had nothing to do with luck, but just to mention it because it's a really cool book. So he writes about these four types of luck in his book, uh, which is uh, Chase, Chance, and Creativity the lucky art of novelty. He's really writing about how luck played a role in his own experiments that he was doing in the lab. And he details these four different kinds of luck. Each type of luck builds on the type that came before. So at the, at the foundation of this is what he called type one luck, which is what most of us probably think about when we think about luck. It's random chance. It's just an unexpected random event that happens to you. We don't see it coming. But there it is, and we, we wind up having to deal with it. And the example I used in the book for type one luck is walking into the casino in Las Vegas and betting everything you have on the outcome of one game and walking out a winner. That's type one luck. That's just random, unexpected, against the odds luck. Type two luck is a combination of randomness and what Austin called movement. Um, I think of it as persistence, really. He uses 
the example of uh, uh, Charles Kettering, who's uh, an American inventor, who very famously said that if you want to solve problems, you have to be persistent, you have to keep moving, you have to keep trying. Uh, chances are you will stumble on something when you least expect it. I've never heard of anyone stumbling on something sitting down. So Kettering was advocating to be luckier, get up and move, get up and try. And type three luck is a combination then of randomness, persistence, and preparation. And Austin uses uh, the famous quote by uh, Louis Pasteur, chance favors the prepared mind. So preparation helps you see patterns in the events that happen to you that other people who are less prepared might not see. And then type four luck combines randomness, persistence, preparation, and our own unique personality, our own spin on what happens in the world. And I use the story of uh, Sarah Kessens and Emily Cole and their uh, attempt to win the 2005 Woodvale Transatlantic Rowing Race, mm -hmm. which just blows my mind. I just cannot wrap my head around voluntarily getting in a rowboat and trying to <laughs> row across the Atlantic Ocean. Just not, not in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So I got the chance to talk with Sarah via email. Um, I think she lives in New Zealand now. Um, she told me that she accidentally came across a book. So there's random chance. Uh, while she was waiting for an airplane to fly home across the Atlantic, by the way, uh, and read about the race. And that was what got her interested in it. She and her racing partner, Emily Cole, had been on the Purdue University women's sculling team. So they already were familiar with and prepared for racing long distances, although nothing like what they were about to attempt. Both thought that the, this race sounded like a challenge instead of something you would avoid at all costs. Uh, and it was right up their alley. And both of them prepared like mad, persisting despite the fact that Indiana lacks an ocean upon which they could practice. So they were practicing on rivers and ponds and, and things like that. So they, they embodied kind of all four aspects of luck. They suffered a, a capsize. Uh, in the race, as did many people, because apparently this was just a, a, an ill-fated race, but they survived and, and tried it again. They entered again, if you can believe it. After that, I don't think I would go anywhere near a rowboat, but they did. <laughs> I love the various um, um, examples like this that you share in the book to, so, you know, to illustrate these different views and understandings of luck. Um, one that is, was particularly uh, I, I don't know, alarming, I guess you could say, if, if, if one's you know, not familiar with the story, was that of Joan Ginther. Uh, can you tell us about Joan Ginther and what her story reveals about luck? I can. One of the things I had the most fun with, actually, in writing the book was finding these stories of lucky people. And Joan Ginther's story was one of the most fun for me because I teach statistics. So uh, I kind of felt a kindred bond with Dr. Ginther. She is a retired professor of mathematics who won the lottery four times, uh, winning a total of, I think, $20 million altogether. Um, her experience is a wonderful example of a streak in a random event. Uh, winning the lottery is random. It's really, really, really hard to predict whether you're going to or not, uh, whether or not the card that you've got, the scratch-off lottery card, that you've got is going to be a winner or not. Um, so her experience 
winning the lottery four times against all the odds and repeatedly was really remarkable. She kind of embodies all four types of luck. Um, she was definitely prepared to understand the chances of winning the lottery. She's a math professor, so she probably knew she was persistent in that she kept trying, even though she knew what the odds were. Uh, she also benefited from uh, the fact that uh, random events are not necessarily patternless. They do happen in streaks with apparent patterns. If you think about the stars in the night sky, you can see patterns in the placement of those stars. In fact, those patterns are so consistent that we give them names. We've, we've labeled the patterns that we see in the night sky. So when something happens like this, when somebody wins the lottery, for example, four times in a row, uh, we tend to think, well, that's not, that's not fair. <laughs> it's not uh, how the universe works. It creates uncertainty, and that uncertainty is unpleasant. So we start looking for a pattern, predictability in that event. Uh, if we can find a pattern, uh, we can then understand that event better. And sometimes that pattern, we just say that's luck. That's an example of luck. Some people insisted, however, that it couldn't be luck because it was so unexpected and that she must have cheated in order to win. Uh, so there, there's a whole bunch of uh, reporters who got attracted to this story and went to try to see, could they find out how she cheated the system? For the life of me, I can't figure out how she would have cheated unless she had a level of control over the creation and distribution of scratch-off lottery cards that is impossible. And that as far as I can tell, she did not have. Um, I just can't see how she cheated. I think she just was the beneficiary of a streak in luck. And more power to you, Joan. So I'm, I'm not going to run. I'm not moved to run out and play the lottery myself because I know what the odds are as well. But there you go. <laughs> Now, um, one question I, I came to mind as I was, I was reading uh, the book, you know, do, is it is luck just something, is it just seem like a universal concept for all human uh, cultures? Is it just something that, that emerges alongside language? Um, is it, did you run any, across anything that even resembled a, a culture without a tradition of luck? I did not. Um, and this was another thing that I found fascinating. I suppose it's, common to all human cultures in that all human cultures are created by humans. So we all share uh, a, a tendency in our cognition in the way that we view the world. Um, I saw an interview with Richard Wiseman, who wrote a book about luck as well. He said that as far as he could tell, that there, it is common to all humans all over the world to want to have control over the unexpected. And that often becomes a tradition of luck and luckiness or lucky gods or lucky shoes or lucky whatever uh, in the world. So if you ask a cognitive uh, science researcher, these are folks who study how humans think, what they think about this, is this a universal characteristic of the way humans think? They probably would tell you yes, in that all humans have the tendency to see patterns in random events. And it's related to uh, another tendency in the way that we think, which is to look for an agent for whatever caused an event to happen. Sometimes you can easily identify the agent 
if you do something and I see you do it, you are the agent. It's really easy for me to tell. Sometimes you can't identify the agent and that makes us nervous. So searching for and needing an agent for any event that happens is a pattern. It's a survival mechanism for us humans. Uh, it goes hand in hand with our tendency to interpret all patterns as having meaning uh, and discounting randomness um, because we can't see what caused it. So we tend to just say, well, that didn't happen. There, there must be something causing this. If that event that happened is beyond the capacity of humans to create, we start looking for invisible superhuman agents. Uh, we refer to these agents very often as gods and goddesses. They are divine. They have control over things we don't have control over. They must be the agent of whatever happened. And maybe if you ask them really, really nicely, they'll help you experience good luck as well. I was a bit surprised at how consistently we humans have insisted on and institutionalized the idea of luck um, as a force in the universe, as something that makes things happen. I'm going to go out on a, on a limb here. Uh, something that might get me into trouble. I am not a cultural <laughs> anthropologist. I'm, I'm interested in this, but I'm not an expert by any means. But what struck me was that most cultures have an explanation of luck and how it influences us. And most of these explanations involve the divine in some way, shape, or form. That seems to be the common underlying factor. Humans like there to be an agent in charge, and very often that agent is a god. Now, there's a whole section of the book where you you look to uh, to different cultures and you go back in in history and look at different uh, ideas. Uh, I was uh, I was a little surprised when prehistoric cave paintings came up. Can you um, describe how prehistoric cave paintings uh -huh. may relate to luck? I have to say, going to see the cave paintings at Lascaux um, or elsewhere, not just photographs of them, is on my personal bucket list. I would love to do that. I'm, I'm told the, the photographs of them just don't do them justice. There's an entire group of researchers who study the paintings that humans have left on the walls of the caves they lived in. Um, they're trying to understand <laughs> the apparently fundamental human need to paint on the walls. If you're a parent and you have children that paint on the walls, it may just be wired into us. I don't know. Uh, there are a number of explanations as to why we do this. I personally like the... Neanderthal adolescent idea that maybe they're tagging the caves. Some researchers think that they were simply recording the hallucinations that they had because there are some common patterns in the hallucinations, visual hallucinations that human beings have. They're called entoptic images. They, they are created by the machinery of the eye itself. So that's why they're so common. And that's why uh, all humans, if you're going to experience them, uh, probably experience the same ones. Have you ever seen a floaty? Um, in yes. your visual mm -hmm. field, something that appears like it's floating across. Well, that's probably debris in the eyeball itself. Um, so that's an example of one of these uh, entoptic uh, images. The other explanation had to do with our ancestors pleading to the universe for good luck. Uh, it might be related, I've often wondered, to our modern urge to display the head of something we've killed on the living room wall. Uh, so maybe they were painting the results of the last hunt uh, and hoping that that would be uh, rewarded by a successful hunt the next time. They have found that 
a number of these paintings seem to be done over and over and over again in the same spot. So there was some aspect of that spot in the cave that was uh, lucky. They had really good luck with the hunt after they painted on that spot. So they went back the next time and painted again. It could just be bragging about what you killed the last time, but it could also be a ritual attempt to ask the random universe for success the next time you go out with your spear and try to bring down a woolly mammoth. <laughs> Seems difficult, but okay. That's fascinating. Um, now, in, uh, in, in this section where you, uh, you deal with the different... Um, cultural traditions. And, and I must say, you, you get into uh, examples from, say, uh, you know, Greek and Roman culture and, and very, various other uh, examples. So I, I highly recommend uh, folks pick up the book and, uh, and, and read it. But I wanted to, to ask uh, about one in particular. Uh, you outlined three models of luck in Chinese traditions. There's, I believe, uh, Ming Yun, uh, which is one's own personal destiny, uh, Wan Fen, fateful coincidence, and Bao Ying, a cosmic accounting of one's life. And you discuss how these are, you know, not not standalone, but interwoven. And this just mm -hmm. got me thinking, do, do you think this is relatable to sort of modern Western views um, on luck that, that, you know, that we may have several different or perhaps even contradictory views of how luck might work mm -hmm. in our lives? Interesting. Uh, I do think that we are often contradictory in what we think, in what we think about a lot of things, not just luck. I think we're a contrary species, just basically. Uh, since the book came out, I can, have been asked, do I believe in luck more times than I can count, which is completely expected. I wrote a book about luck, so yay, I guess that means people are reading it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that the answer is as binary as the question is. If you ask me, do I believe in luck? I would say yes and no, which is a really wishy-washy answer, I realize. Most of the time, I don't believe in luck. I believe in hard work, persistence, and preparation. But if I hit the lottery tomorrow, I'm going to say something along the lines of, wow, that was really lucky. Mm -hmm. I think... Lots of people feel that way. They share that view. When, when I can see what I did to create an outcome, uh, when I can see how I've influenced that outcome, uh, when I have control and I know I have control, I don't need luck. I don't need to, it as an explanation for what happened. But when I don't have control, uh, then I need luck and then I believe. I'm actually somewhat embarrassed to admit that I own a pair of lucky shoes. <laughs> They became lucky when they got paired randomly with success. I wore them to a job interview and I got the, I got the job. Um, I do not think it was the shoes that got me the job. That would be creepy and weird. <laughs> I think it was my preparation, my what I brought to the opportunity, that sort of thing. But those shoes are still lucky for me and I still have them. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think of, like I was, um, you bring up, you know, various, you know, lucky items and charms and amulets and all. And uh, so I, it got to me, got me to looking around my own house and recognize some, some things that are, I, I guess, you know, technically lucky charms of some, you know, or lucky mementos. They're supposed to be items of luck. Uh, and then I'll tend to think of them not as, as some sort of an amulet or anything. I'll think of like a reminder of, of something good. Uh, but then again, 
it's just kind of linguistically dancing around the, the idea of it being a, a lucky item. Like, you know, we're just kind of arguing right. about terminology right. at this point. I think it comes down to semantics after a while. Yeah. Lots and lots of people carry, carry lucky charms. Um, I, I don't see anything particularly wrong with it. I like my lucky shoes. They're very nice shoes. So I'm not going to worry about it too much. Is it contradictory? Probably. But I'm okay with that. Now, uh, another question that came to mind. Do, do you see a link between divination practices and the need to create randomness? I've, I think I've seen this discussed before in terms of ancient bone casting rituals or the, or the I Ching, a means of stepping outside of humanity's inherent inability to, to grasp or produce randomness. I actually had not heard that. I was uh, I was intrigued when you said that. I think human beings are bad at creating randomness. If you ask people to create a random display, most of the time we can't do it. Um, mm. This is actually a question that philosophers and mathematicians argue about. Um, and I'm perfectly willing to let them have at it. Uh, I don't have a, a good answer for that, but I think we're we're bad at generating or creating randomness because we seem to be wired to see patterns and to interpret them as meaningful. So if you ask me to abandon that and to create a random event um, or series of events, it's usually not random. There's usually a pattern in it. And that's because of the way that the brain is designed to interpret uh, events in the world. So I think what you're saying is that you've come across evidence that in an attempt to introduce randomness, people have used casting bones or or the I Ching or um, something like that to create random because we're so bad at it. Mm-hmm. Is that what you were, what you yeah, were talking I that about? Yeah, I think that's basically the, the idea as I've, I've read it. I, I want to say maybe it was Julian Jaynes who uh, wrote about it at some point. I'll have to go look that up. Now, outside of, uh, you know, any kind of scholarly attempt to understand randomness, I enjoy uh, board games and role-playing games uh, such as Dungeons & Dragons, which to varying degrees uh, in, uses tables and dice to generate randomness that is useful in sort of generating an adventure or, a, you know, a, some sort of a, a situation for players to engage in. Um, and some systems even have like a luck mechanic. There'll be like a luck, uh, like some sort of numerical rating for luck that uh, is somehow factored into uh, everything. Um, I, I, don't, I don't imagine any of this reveals anything about our perceptions of luck, though, does it? I, I, I'm not sure. I think, I think we're, we're fascinated by random events. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be scary, but they're interesting. They will grab your attention. Um, how else can you explain horror movies and how yeah. popular they are? I'm not really familiar with games that, that I don't play Dungeons and Dragons, so I don't really know uh, the example you're using. Uh, but I think that since games that we play reflect the lives that we live, and many people think of luck as an element in the universe that can and does affect us, that having some luck-driven aspect of the game would be completely human. I just didn't realize it was built into the game. I did not know that. (laughs) 
in your book, you write that, quote, luckiness could be described as a creature of our imagination. If we could imagine something worse happening, and if that something worse is close at hand, it might have happened recently. Uh, we had a choice of actions that lead to the possible something worse, or we deserve that outcome. We say we were lucky. It all seems to hinge on being able to imagine something worse. Uh, I found that that uh, that really interesting as well, and, and this makes complete sense. But it also makes me wonder: Do you think people who are inclined to engage in catastrophic thinking uh, and worst case scenarios are they more inclined to assume luck, not probability, played a role in, say, um, you know, not being bitten by a shark on a recent vacation? I like that example. It makes me think. I had a I had a student in my statistics class last week, as a matter of fact, who asked me if something that I said in class was true. <laughs> They're listening. That's, that's good. I had been talking about the Monte Carlo fallacy in statistics class and explaining why it's a fallacy. Uh, the, the Monte Carlo fallacy is another example of how we usually misinterpret probability. It's the belief that an event will be, for example, less likely to happen if it follows a series of similar events, or that a past event can change the probability of a future one. Uh, it's named after a famous streak in random events that happened at the casino at Monte Carlo. Um, the player on the roulette wheel betting black won time after time after time. The little marble kept landing on black. And as it did that, the other players at the table started to bet more and more heavily that the next spin would be red as if the probability of the marble landing on black was decreasing as the streak went on mm -hmm. and the probability that it would land on red was increasing. Uh, we're talking about independent events here. Uh, each spin of the wheel is independent of every other spin of the wheel, unless the wheel is rigged, in which case you shouldn't be playing there. Um, so what happened on the last spin has no effect at all on what happens on the next spin. It's 50-50 that it'll land on black every single spin, unless the universe is keeping score uh, and decides there have been too many uh, landing on black events, so the next one has to be red. Um, and I don't think it is. Uh, then what happened the last time has no effect on what happens the next time. My student looked shocked by this, so I asked her why. Uh, and she said that she had always believed, like the players at the table had believed, that to use your example of being bitten by a shark, um, that the probability of being bitten by a shark if she goes into the ocean would go up as the number of days that no one had been bitten by mm -hmm. a shark also increased. Right. It doesn't work that way. Um, and we, we had an, an interesting discussion about how it does not work that way. Um, she came to class the next time kind of reconciled to this. So, yay, my work here is done. So, <laughs> um, I think part of the reason we do this, and I, I do it myself, I have done it myself, is that we're wired to think that the worst thing can happen. And there's a survival component to that. If you prepare yourself for the worst thing that can possibly happen, then, then you're ready for that should it happen. And if it doesn't happen, you're still okay because um, you were prepared. So the problem is that overestimating the probability of a negative event produces anxiety, and anxiety can really change how you process what happens next. So uh, I think I, I may have wandered down the garden path here, but uh, I 
I do think that uh, we do tend to think catastrophically uh, in order to prepare for catastrophe uh, and that that is related to how lucky or unlucky uh, we feel ourselves to be, believe ourselves to be. So speaking of of anxiety, uh, how does stress and superstition, superstition about luck and bad luck, how, how do these seem to be linked together? Well, stress and anxiety can reinforce catastrophic thinking. Anxiety tends to narrow what psychologists call the spotlight of attention. If you're anxious, that spotlight is really, really narrow. You're focused on just that one little thing and you're missing. You're actually not seeing or hearing uh, the other things that are happening. If you're relaxed and happy, that spotlight is wide and you're taking in more information. So if you get stressed out and anxious and you're focused on that catastrophic thing and only that catastrophic thing, it can make it more and more difficult to cope. And uh, it can make you more likely to see the negative and less likely to see the positive. Superstitions develop as a means of deflecting usually something negative or fearful uh, to keep that from happening. There was this very interesting study done on the the superstition of knocking on wood, um, which developed by uh, out of the Celtic culture the belief that trees in the forest were inhabited by spirits that could mess with you if they felt like it, um, especially if you came upon them unexpectedly, uh, produced this, this myth or the superstition of knocking on wood. So you walk by the tree and knock on it to let them know that you're here so that they, they'll leave you alone. They won't <laughs> be surprised by your sudden appearance. Uh, it keeps bad luck away from us. So in this study, they they asked people to describe their level of stress. How stressed are you? And then they gave them a difficult task to do. And they asked them as they were doing it, how strong is the urge to knock on wood, uh, for example? And uh, what they found was that the, the more stressed they were, the more they reported the urge to knock on wood. Now, not very many of them did it because they're in a psychology experiment and the psychologist is watching them. <laughs> They don't want to look superstitious, but they did report that they felt the urge more strongly when they were stressed out. So carrying lucky charms produces a similar effect. Uh, Having a lucky ritual or a lucky pen or even lucky shoes can make us feel more uh, confident in the face of the unknown and the unpredictable. Having that with you reduces anxiety. And when you're less anxious, you perform better. So, you know, success breeds success. So. Hmm. I have to admit, uh, previously, I I did not know what the origin of knocking on wood was uh, as a oh, really? uh, sort of good okay. luck uh, uh, practice. It's something that I I would catch myself doing often if I'm, you know, in, engaging in a conversation with somebody. Like, I don't think I would ever catch myself doing it like by myself, but uh, you know, someone would say something, they'd knock on wood, I'd pick up on it. And I guess the the barrier to entry is very low in it. You just have to have something wooden around to knock on. Yeah, my desk, knock on wood. <laughs> now, uh, traditions of luck like like this and others, they, they can be fun and they, they're they often a part of one's culture. 
But what do you think is the best way to explain these traditions to uh, to, to younger people, to children? Uh, I often wonder about this with my own son, where I, I might explain a tradition or even introduce him to one, but then I feel like I have to really couch it all in sort of the fiction or the superstition of the thing so that he doesn't take it too seriously. Um, but then I, I, am I taking too much of the magic out of it? I don't know. What, what do you think is the right approach? Oh, well, I will tell you right off the bat that I don't have children, so uh, I've never been faced with this. <laughs> I'm probably not the person to ask. I do think that you probably, I don't think you would destroy the magic if you explained it to a child. Uh, I think children are remarkably willing to believe in magic. I mean, who but a child would think that tying a red towel around their shoulders would give them the power of flight? That's, <laughs> that's magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that you're going to, by being realistic, explain, uh, explain away the magic. I think the magic is there. Regardless, there's plenty of adult people who see magic as perfectly possible as well. I don't really have any good advice for how to how to explain this to your child because I don't have any. I have three stepchildren, but they were pretty much uh, beyond that stage by the time I came around. So yeah, I'll, I guess I'll just have to have to keep. Uh, uh... Uh, wrestling with it here. Uh, yeah, basically, you mentioned the red cape. It is actually a, a similar situation where my son knows that red is often considered a um, you know a, a good luck color, and so they'll be we'll be playing a game or something, and he'll say, "Oh wait, let me go get a red shirt on for this part," you know, to get really um, geared oh, really? up. For, yeah, and so I you know wow. when he does that, I, I don't want to say no, don't do that, you know, don't engage in superstition, but I also want to explain to him, well, you know, this is not actually going to have an impact on what happens, but, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, but then it, it's, keep explaining. It's kind of, yeah. Just keep explaining. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, uh, another question, this is something you get into in the book. Um, are people who believe in luck generally happier? Well, that's an easy one. Yes. Um, psychology used to think of luck as being a sign that you were, uh, focused in the wrong direction, that it was a sign of not processing things appropriately. But lots of studies more recently have shown that people who believe themselves to be lucky people um, are more hopeful, they're happier, they they perform better. It even affects something called executive function, which is the function of the frontal lobe, how you pay attention to the world, how you, um, there are several aspects to executive function uh, one is paying attention. Um, and all of those aspects can be affected by belief in luck because I think because you're happier, you're just a happier person and that changes how you work, how you function. Um, there's a study that showed in 2019 that less happy people, people who were unhappy, had a stronger belief in external luck, that it was out there not them that was lucky, but that it was a force out there in the universe that dictated your fate, whether it was good or bad. They're blaming luck for what happens to them. And that tends to make you feel as though you don't have personal agency, that what you do isn't going to have an effect, um, diminishes their sense of purpose uh, and their overall happiness. So seeing luck as external to you might be associated with being more unhappy. But seeing luck as personal, as something that's an aspect of you, 
uh, tends to be associated with people being happier. Uh, it's a, I suppose, a, a, a variant of optimism, and optimism always makes us feel better. Uh, it breeds, it breeds hope. It breeds self acceptance, uh, connection with other people, and with positive experiences. So people who see themselves as lucky may be more willing to try something new, uh, to be inspired to go out and try to be uh, a helper out in the world, um, to help other people because they feel that life has been kind to them. And so they can then extend that to the, the rest of us. So, yeah, uh, people who see themselves as lucky are, generally speaking, happier. So in that case, can we learn to be lucky? Can we make that change in our, in our lives? Yeah. The same psychologist in the UK that I was talking about, Richard Wiseman, uh, has been studying luck and uh, other factors that are related to it for the last 20 years. He used to run, I don't know if he's still running it or not, but he used to run a luck school where he would teach you how to be lucky. I don't know if it's still operating or not. He had details in his book, he has a book out called The, the Luck Factor. Um, and he details in that book several ways, several things you can do to try to improve your, your feeling of personal luckiness. Try to be more open to new experiences, be more social, make more connections with other human beings, pay attention to your intuition, your gut feeling about something, uh, expect good fortune as opposed to expecting disaster uh, and develop your resiliency, your ability to come back even from uh, a disaster, uh, come back from that still looking uh, for the positive in life. I think the most practical bit of advice that he had was to begin a gratitude diary uh, to track the positive in your life. Uh, so every day you would write down a positive thing uh, that happened to you. It makes you focus on the positive more. It, it tends to make us happier. Uh, that widens our attentional spotlight. Uh, that makes us more likely to notice random things that come up, uh, et cetera. So as I said, success breeds success. So if you can do that, that might be the first step in learning how to be a luckier person. Excellent. Well, there's some, some, some words of wisdom there. I'll remind everybody that the book, again, is What Are the Chances? Why We Believe in Luck. And uh, yeah, we, we, we didn't even get into, I think, half of the, the, the material you discuss in there. There's, there's stuff in there about, about curses, the curse of the mummy, um, uh, certainly a, a lot of uh, neuroscientific information uh, that's worth reading as well. Uh, so I encourage everyone to go out there and pick it up. Thank you. Thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with me, Barbara. Thank you. This was fun. All right. Well, thanks once more to Barbara for taking time out of her day to chat with me about the book. The book, again, is What Are the Chances? Why We Believe in Luck. Currently available and I think pretty much any format you might be desiring. And that is out from Columbia University Press. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find us in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Monday, and on Fridays we do a little uh, uh, little bit of content called uh, Weird House Cinema. Uh, that's our time to set aside most of the serious concerns and just discuss a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for 
the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 